In any Utah legislative session, it seems like there's the stuff they have to do and the stuff they want to do. They have to pass a budget. They have to fund agencies in education. They debate issues like air and water and housing. Now, they wouldn't put it this way, but often the stuff they want to do is the juicy stuff, the culture war bills. And every session has them. But the question is when they'll bring them out. Robert Gerke of the Salt Lake Tribune looked at the last few years and he found a clue for what will happen this time around. So at the end of the 2022 session, on the very last day, this bill shows up. Essentially, what it would have done is it would have made it so transgender females are not allowed to play female sports in high school. The bill was enormously controversial, and the governor ends up vetoing it. But I think the blowback from that taught the legislature a lesson. They don't want to put all of these big controversial issues at the end of the session. So then fast forward to the 2023 session, we saw all of these controversial bills come out right at the beginning of the session. We're talking about abortion bills, we're talking about bills dealing with transgender health care, things like that. They dealt with all of these up front. And controversial bills like this are nothing new. We get them every session. These issues take up a lot of time, they consume a lot of energy. So the legislature learned from their experience in 2022 that if they put these at the front of the session, it opens up the back end of the session for them to deal with things like affordable housing, homelessness, and the budget, the big issues that they've got to deal with. We're expecting that again this year in 2024 as we enter the legislative session, in particular because it's an election year. And everybody's going to have to go back to the voters and convince them that they're accomplishing these conservative goals that they set out to do. And so what we've seen already this year is a host of bills targeting diversity programs in colleges and universities, talking about transgender access to restrooms. And we're talking about getting rid of vote by mail. We're talking about education access for undocumented immigrants. You know, a pushback against federal overreach, even sort of nullifying some of the federal regulations that the state doesn't like. So we're going to see these issues rise to the top. They're going to rise to the top early. It's going to be a contentious few weeks, and it's going to be a real litmus test for the direction that Utah takes in the future. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Lawmakers began this year's legislative session yesterday in the usual way with prayers and music and speeches. They only have 45 days, so they will start digging in today. Now, we wanted to get a sense of what to expect. So we asked Robert Gerke of the Tribune to walk us through this. He joined us along with Holly Richardson. She's a former Republican state legislator and editor of Utah Policy. It's a news aggregator. Sean Higgins also joined us. He's a political reporter at KUER News, and he co-hosts our podcast, State Street. Now, this is an election year, and they all told us we should expect that will influence the session. Sean Higgins went first. The way that politics, particularly Republican politics, has shifted in the last couple of decades, unless you have an incredibly competitive district, you don't see challengers from the center anymore. You're always challenged further to your right or further to your left. And I think redistricting over the last couple of years has only reinforced those trends in Utah. I think there are some exceptions. However, Daniela Harding is challenging Trevor Lee. They're both Republicans. And Daniela is further to the center. 
than Trevor Lee is. So one of the things that's unique about the election cycle is that we had um, election filing at the very beginning of January. It's the earliest ever, right? Hmm. So they do know who who they're facing. And they're always message bills. But I also anticipate that some of the candidates will use the legislature as a bully pulpit for, like you said, flyers and other campaign issues. Let's talk about the speaker a little bit more. Mike, Mike Schultz, um, Robert, you were mentioning he seems like he's further to the right than Brad Wilson was. Yeah. But but so you hear that he may be inclined to listen to more of the kind of excessive further right bits of legislation, maybe entertain that in a way that Brad Wilson may not have. But then by the same token, you're also hearing a lot of language from him about being interested in consensus. And so what do you make of those two polar things? From what I've been told, and Holly and Sean can correct me if I'm wrong, he has really no choice but to give a lot of latitude to the right wing of the party because he almost faced an opponent from the right wing of the party. He had to make some concessions to try to make sure he got the support and he needed to be speaker. And so we've L- seen, like the national model. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah. like Mike Johnson at yeah. the national level, he's got his own freedom caucus, so to speak, right. that he's got to appease in some ways. And so you, they've got more committee chairmanships, better positions on committees, and and also you know he's fundamentally more aligned with them. Yes, he's. Um, I have a lot of respect for Mike Schultz as a lawmaker because he's a bulldog when he gets a hold of an issue. But he's also a pro-Trump guy. He talked about how he left his Trump flag up until July after Trump lost the election because he didn't want to believe that Trump lost the election. You know, he's very supportive of it. He's also expressed quite a bit of hostility toward colleges and universities, higher education generally. And so you can kind of see they have a target on their back this session. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, say what you will about Brad Wilson. His main focus was trying to keep the trains running up at the Capitol mm-hmm. and not embarrass the state of Utah. And he was pretty good at it. And so now we've got a new speaker who's a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, maybe polarizing and and less experienced and has a bigger problem with his conservative caucus in the, in his own party. I think to add on to that, there are also the, the added variable of the Senate as well. The Senate is not as reactive of a body. Yeah, as, we always as the talk House about is. the House. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I spoke with Speaker Schultz before the session and I asked him, like, how do you approach those conversations when you might have a lot of popular support in the House, but you either hear in the Senate there's not traction or the governor is going absolutely not. And his answer was, politics is math. we got to do what we can to get to that mm-hmm. threshold to either get it across the line in a signature or that constitutional majority, that two-thirds in both houses. You know, I think that's an interesting statement that it's math. Uh, I don't know that all speakers have taken that into account. So I think that gives me a little bit of hope. But the Senate is where bills go to die, right? Mm-hmm. So we kind of know that. It's true on the national level. It's true in Utah. They're the cooling saucer, they, right? They are, right? They're supposed to be more deliberative. Yeah. They skew older in age in Utah as well. And I think the House has always been the rowdy <laughs> the rowdy place to that's be, right? True. But I think Speaker Schultz will do a good job. I, I think unlike Speaker Johnson, nobody's going to throw him out <laughs> in the first you know, 20 days or whatever it is. <laughs> he's a little more comfortable in his yeah. position, isn't he? Yeah. I want to ask a little bit more, at least while we're here, on the culture war bills. And I'm not sure which one to sort of tease out. There's a transgender bathrooms. Just I'll pick one. A couple of bills have been filed this year that would limit transgender people from using public restrooms. I don't know if you have to want to say anything in particular about that. I mean, it's again, what are the chances of these kinds of things, particularly in an election year, I guess? I would say in an election year, quite 
good that, that are good. these could get to the governor's desk. And I think Governor Cox is in a pretty precarious situation because he has vetoed some of these things in the past and the legislature has come right back and slapped it back in his face. I mean, we, we, we saw, had the same debate. How, how many years ago? Five, six years ago when, when bathrooms were at the forefront and yeah. then they stepped back and then they nibbled away at participation in sports. And then we had health care last year. And now we've come full circle back to the issue that first started this. Yeah. Representative uh, Kira Berkland is at it, at it again, I guess it's fair to say. You know, for me, I think the easy solution is just to say you can have what, whether you call it a family bathroom or a unisex bathroom or whatever. I've been in restaurants where they have a sign on the door and they're like, we don't care if you're male, female or a dolphin, just flush, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, something and wash your hands. Right. So, yeah, I that one. I don't know how much controversy there will be over that one, but you're right. They just keep picking at it and picking at it and picking at it. So There there are workarounds, like Holly says, but that takes some changes to the schools that you know we're talking about yeah. or the universities. And, and you know, you mentioned Kara Berkland. Phil Lyman's also sponsoring one of these bills. Mm-hmm. And as Sean said at the outset, Phil has announced he's going to challenge Governor Cox and he's been beating him up pretty hard on social media. And this is this strikes me as an issue that is just ripe for political red meat come the primary season. Yeah. I mean, you've got that issue. You've got Kara Berkland's Women's Bill of Rights. I think we'll probably see sort of in that LGBTQ realm another run at the Don't Say Gay bill hmm. that Jeff Stank was backed away from last year. He said he's going to bring that back. So there's there's a host of those sorts of bills in that LGBTQ area. How much money does the state have? And what does the sort of conversation, the debate about the budget reveal about the priorities, the actual priorities of lawmakers, do you think? You know, what's so interesting is it's, I feel like it's a huge budget. <laughs> so 10 years ago, 13 years ago, I guess it was around $11 billion, and now it's almost $30 billion. It was 29.5 in the governor's budget. One of the things that's interesting about politics and money is that you always spend every penny that you get. Mm-hmm. So Utah, at least, balances our budget, and we don't spend more than we have, but we certainly will spend every single thing we have. So. They, they don't spend every single bit of it, though, because we've had tax cuts every year for the last four years. Well, uh, then they spend that, too. <laughs> they've set aside a 0.1%. And, yeah, I remember, like Holly said, I remember when it was still single billions, you know. It was like yeah. $9 billion, $8 yeah. billion, something like that when I started covering the session. But we've seen this tremendous growth in the state population-wise. We've seen yeah. tremendous growth in the economy. We've seen inflation. So, you know, $11 billion isn't what it used to be. That's, right. That's um, true. That's true. But <laughs> so, so, yeah, the budget's, the budget's growing. It's going to be a, a record budget. It is almost every single year that, we, that we're up there. The question then becomes, you know, like uh, – Joe Biden used to say, don't don't tell me your priorities, show me your budget, and I'll tell you your priorities. So that's kind of what we've seen from Governor Cox. He's put a marker down on uh, homelessness, affordable housing, uh, water infrastructure. One of the interesting things that I'm watching pretty closely is uh, he's proposed a subsidy for child care, which we have a real crisis in Utah when it comes to child care and its impact on the workforce. And so there's 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 a host of issues that he's teed up, you know, and it, but that's, again, it's always an issue where the governor proposes and the, and the legislature disposes, I guess is yeah. what they say. Yeah, the budget is a suggestion more yeah. than a yeah. <laughs> Right, of course, of course. But it does lead to the question of the relationship between the governor and lawmakers. They're Republicans. Are they 
But they're ne- but almost never completely in alignment at the at the legislature. So what do you, what about that this year? Do you, any ideas? Speaking with Schultz, I asked him particularly about the budget, and and he wouldn't go into hard details on on line items, but he will say that he and his colleagues in the legislature appreciate the collaborative nature of Governor Cox when it comes to the budget in particular. Uh, I was hearing some of the predecessors of Governor Cox were less collaborative when it came to the budget. So I think when we look at the nitty gritty of, of what is being proposed to spend all these millions of dollars on, I think Utah First Housing Program has a bit of traction. What that will actually look like in practice and what the exact dollar amount is is to be seen. I think the homeless portion is going to be a harder sell because the narrative over the last few years is this is Salt Lake City's fault and Salt Lake City's problem to solve. And we think we've seen Mayor Mendenhall over the last four years try really hard to flip that narrative. And it's come around to at least the governor is now recognizing the state does have a role to play in this. But whether the rest of the legislature sees it the same way, I think, is going to be a really interesting storyline when it comes to the budget this year. We'll we'll come back to some of those particulars because I want to talk about the homelessness and housing. Um, Taxes. uh, Lawmakers have talked about cutting the income tax. The governor wants to get rid of it entirely. What what are you thinking is going to happen in terms of taxes? Is is there any indication? So I think in the governor's budget, he did not actually propose a tax cut, but the legislature is talking about $160 million in tax cuts. I think the governor's point is if you're going to do away with the income tax, do it all at once, right? Don't just nibble around the edges every year. But I, I think it's interesting, right, that every year we cut taxes and yet you know, how does that trickle down to families where could the money be spent elsewhere? I mean, some certainly activist groups will say the money could be better spent on um, feeding kids at school, for example, or things like that. But yeah, I mean, that's the constant debate. Have we have we met the needs or the or or what we think that government should be providing? And then if you have money left over, then a tax cut makes sense. So they, they kind of flip it on its head a little bit where they set aside money at the beginning and say, we're going to cut taxes by this much. This year, it's a tenth of a percent that they've set aside. And, and, you know, and then kind of build the budget around that. There are a lot of people clamoring for additional money. I mean, you know, other states, Colorado, for example, is putting hundreds of millions of dollars into affordable housing yeah. because they have, they're facing a similar crisis that Utah is. Utah's commitment is, has been a lot more meager uh, and, and we're still seeing this problem expanding, not you – know, we're not addressing it in a meaningful way. So you know, he, the governor in particular is putting quite a bit of money into affordable housing, $30 million into deeply affordable housing, another $50 million into a first-time homebuyer tax credit, which – has some benefits, but it also only applies to new construction, which, you know, if you if you want to buy a bungalow in Salt Lake City, you're not going to be able to get that. You know, it's something that you want to renovate or something like that. And so it, it does have some uh, drawbacks, I think, in that respect. So, but yeah, I mean, the, the tax cuts are, are constantly on the minds of the legislature. I think that, frankly, if you're going to cut taxes, Holly mentioned getting rid of it altogether. I think that's a risky way to do it because that creates a lot of uncertainty and turmoil. And you're also lean so much heavily, more heavily on sales tax revenue, mm-hmm. which is that we always hear from these guys is a very fluid, you know, it yeah, fluctuates a lot more. Yeah. It's a lot more volatile. So you don't know what you're going to have one year to next. That's the advantage of the income taxes. It's relatively stable. Will this be the year that Utah creates a lottery. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> would say something about that for those listening. There, there is a, there's an idea out there. I, 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 this brings us back to Representative Berkland. Yes. 
Yeah, which is uh, to me, you're all kind sur- of rolling your eyes. Isn't it was this absurd. Su- it was just surprising that Representative Berkland would actually run a lottery bill, but uh, the chances of it passing in Utah are slim to none. We're just not there yet. As the legislature's not there, I don't think the public is there. The lottery is not a retirement plan, right? <laughs> like some people think it might be. It it just uh, we're just not there. And how how does she propose getting around the constitutional prohibition on games of chance? I mean, that seems to me that I that's sort of you've know. done some reporting on this, Sean. What do you know about it? I mean, I I think I think what were the statement version Bergen like? Who's who's not done a raffle at at their church or right. something like that? Technically, <laughs> yeah, we're all criminals. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the lottery probably does not have much of a chance, particularly when we head over to the Senate. I think that's where this one is going to be, if not dead on arrival, heavily, heavily, heavily amended. I could see maybe raffles being an exception and and (laughs) get a little victory there. But as far as going to the 7-Eleven and buying scratch tickets, no way. Uh, Senator Hinkins, David Hinkins, uh, raises racehorses, and for the last couple of years, he sponsored a legislation to make betting on horses legal, and that's never gone anywhere either. I think there's sort of this because of the LDS prohibition sure. on gambling yeah. and their predominance in the legislature. Eighty, ninety percent of the body is is LDS. I think it's it's a non-starter. My my prediction is it doesn't even get out of rules on the House side. <laughs> doesn't even. But get it's fun to hearing. talk about. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. We've probably spent more time than we should. On it. And um, I think part of the interesting discussion about this is, I mean, there are surrounding states that do have lotteries. And sure. the argument is Utahns want to participate in this and they're spending that money in other places. To go to Wyoming. If you yeah. go, if well, you that's, go to, that's representative yeah. of Brooklyn's argument. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But then, then you have the other side, like, is this a tax on the poor, essentially, or yeah. people who... Don't understand. Don't math. understand math. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you go up to Malad during Powerball season and you see dozens of Utah plates in there, but the same is true in Wendover. So, do yeah. we legalize slot machines? I'm for it. Robert Gerke, he's a columnist for the Salt Lake Tribune. Also with us is Sean Higgins. He's a political reporter at KUER and the co-host of the podcast State Street. We also have Holly Richardson with us, editor of the news aggregator Utah Policy. What are lawmakers doing? What are, how are they thinking about – Holly, this is something you've written about water. What are we expecting in terms of the way they're thinking about the lake, of course, Great Salt Lake, there's water con- infrastructure, those kinds of things? So there's multiple things, right? So water infrastructure is one. Conservation is one. Conservation across the state for businesses, for schools, private residences. They're still having conversations about that. I think last year ended up being kind of a – a by year, right, where we didn't have to be quite as concerned, it seems like, because Mother Nature really did a nice job of filling those reservoirs. But this winter so far, this, I mean, recent storms excluded has been pretty dry. And so part of that conversation again is, okay, we actually do live in a very dry state. So what does that look like long term? And and, and we still, a, a lot of us live, you know, year to year. It's like, oh, well, it snowed a lot so I can water my lawn, right? But without that long-term view, and I think that's what the legislature wants to focus on. Is there a long-term view? One of the things you've written, Sean, is that the the speaker, Speaker Schultz, has a sort of long horizon view. Is he applying that to how he's thinking about water? I think it's interesting because this is the first year of the Great Salt Lake Commissioner that was 
Speaker Schultz's baby really last year. Yeah. And and the speaker's from Hupper. That's yep. right on the shores of the Great Salt Lake, Hupper north County, of Salt Lake. Yep. And I think looking at some of the things – there's a – the uh, uh, recommendations from the commissioner are going to be released publicly in the next couple of weeks probably. I think the, the legislature and the governor have already seen this and signed off on it. But, but it does contain, from what I'm hearing, some interesting things like water diversion stuff to eliminate or at least mitigate some of the, the dust we've seen being kicked up in, in parts of the lake that does dry up in, in the summertime. And I think looking long term, that's where a lot of the legislation we've seen passed in the last couple of years. It's not like a quick fix that we'd see right away. It's stuff putting the, the policy, if you will, in place that will benefit us 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the road over time. Does it seem like the, uh, and I'm wondering um, what advocates for the lake, for example, are saying about these kinds of measures up on the hill? Is it is it enough? Are they being as aggressive as they should be? What are you hearing about? That? Oh no, I mean the the advocates have been saying for years that they're nowhere near as aggressive as they should be. They're yeah. not treating it as a crisis; they're treating it as an inconvenience. And and also while they're kind of doing some of these programs that. We haven't seen had have much impact. They're also advocating for you know mineral production on the Great Salt Lake that could consume a lot more water than we've seen in the past. And then there's a Colorado River component to yeah. it too. And and there's a lot of talk about how there's you now a Colorado River authority authority yeah, and yeah. and how they're going to allocate that water. There's obviously big regional negotiations on. Colorado River water use. And if we have a situation where we have to start paring back our Colorado River water use, well, then we've got real problems. And what's the status of the Lake Powell pipeline, which is a big diversion project out of the Colorado River, water that probably isn't actually there with huge cost? You know, it, it, there's there's a lot of moving pieces in Utah's water picture currently. They've tried to chip away at it, I guess, pick the low-hanging fruit, and now they have a lot more Anything that they do from here on out is going to be, I think, a little bit more substantive and a little bit harder to get the political will to do it. I think the consensus is there's no one solution, right? There has to be multiple approaches to the Great Salt Lake, but that has to do with agriculture and it has to do with the mineral extraction. But there is, but, but Holly, River. is there an acknowledgement by 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 lawmakers that you know? That, um, most lawmakers that that this is is Robert was saying more than an inconvenience. It is. A I, I think for me, what I'm seeing is that they are finally acknowledging this is past an inconvenience that we're at a crisis. Yeah. I think I think they also hear economic factors a lot more clearly than they hear environmental factors. Mm. And I think they're starting to hear from businesses that yeah. they're having a hard time getting people to move here because they don't want to raise people don't want to raise their kids on the shore of a you know, toxic dust bowl. <laughs> right. uh, and so, and people are leaving. You know, I've yeah. talked to people who are, who are like, this is untenable. Um, I'm not going to wait around for it to reach a point where it's dangerous. I'm going to get out now. I think there's, depending on how you look at this, a disconnect between the rhetoric and the policy. Hmm. And I think, like Holly said, we've seen a lot more recognition, at least in, in words being used on Capitol Hill from leadership. Speaker Wilson spoke a lot about this. Governor Cox has spoken ad nauseum about the need. He he vowed last year that we will not have the Great Salt Lake dry up. He said he spoke recently that. Yes, yeah, very recently, yeah, yeah. very recently. Thing. And then I think certainly people like the Utah Rivers Council see that as just lip service. And they're like, we need to have drastic action yesterday on this stuff if we have any chance. So I think the rhetoric is there now. Whether those policy steps are bold enough, I think, remains to be seen. 
Let's come back to housing. Uh, Governor Cox has uh, this plan to build 35,000 starter homes. It's going to cost something like $150 million. Uh, Sean, one of the things you've written about is that Speaker Schultz says, okay, if the policy isn't right, the, the money doesn't necessarily matter. What, what, is, what does he mean by that and what does that tell you about the way the lawmakers may be inclined toward this idea? I think this really kind of speaks to how people see the role of the state when it comes to actual housing because when you look at it, the state can't tell a city or a town where to build yeah. houses. That is up to planning commissions and city councils. I'm a former city hall reporter. Political careers – die on these growth issues. Um, and I think when we, we talk about getting the policy right, it, it's setting up a framework by the state to have these local municipalities build on top of it. I think what, what Schultz is wary of is just kind of throwing money out there and expecting it to do what we want it to do without having the right diversions in the right spots policy-wise to, to get it working. And $150 million for 35,000 homes is not that much per home. But when you look at what this is actually going toward, a lot of it is going toward getting infrastructure out to buildable areas of the state that previously would have been prohibitively expensive for a developer to do it all on their own to get water and electricity out to these places. It's funding innovations in construction to make things cheaper than they are now. Uh, $50 million for the first time homebuyers assistance program, which is depending on who you talk to, very narrow right now. We're hearing that it's probably not going to be expanded above that $450,000 threshold, still going to be new construction. So it sounds like you're saying there's a lot of talk and it's the same conversation maybe about water, a lot of rhetoric. Will they put their money where their mouth is? Is that what you're saying? I think putting a number and a sunset date on this goal is is going to be quite motivating because 35,000 homes in the next four years, that's a lot of homes yeah. in a short amount of time. And I think the other side of this, what is a starter home? Is it a, is a single family home? Is it a dollar amount? Is it a condo? Is it a town home? No one really knows right now. That's kind of up to developers and the market to decide on, on what that is. I saw a dollar amount in the governor's budget, 300000 That is starter. Yeah. These that is days, starter, right? But well, that would, <laughs> that would be on the cheaper end, right? Right now, the starter homes are half a million dollars. Yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah. crazy. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I guess – if I could just take a step back, one of the questions I have asked about with these programs is, aren't we just subsidizing sprawl and doesn't that just contribute to more transportation issues? Because these starter homes are not going to be built in <clears throat> downtown Salt Lake or Murray. They're going to be built in Bluffdale, Harriman, up in North Salt Lake or, you know, areas like that. And, and you know, then we're just heaping on to our transportation issues that we've got and our pollution issues that we've got. But let's call it like it is, this legislature is run by developers largely. And so who's going to benefit from building these 35,000 starter homes? It's going to be these developers that are getting these first-time homebuyer tax credits, you know, on the receiving end of it, right? And so, it, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there are policy issues that go beyond the things that are just like, do we want 35,000 starter homes? Absolutely. Will it help our housing crisis? Absolutely. But how are we going to do it and how are we going to maintain the integrity and the vitality of our urban areas or are we just going to sacrifice those, let them be hollowed out so we can drive this flight to the suburbs at the expense of these other cities? I think a lot of it comes down to this conversation around zoning and, and density. And I think when we talk about the, the policy side of it, the state 
can't really tell cities what to do with their zoning rules either. Yeah. And I think it's up to these local elected officials to make these decisions. And that can put them in a very precarious political spot, knowing what I know about local politics. Mm-hmm. So I think that is going to be the biggest roadblock is progressive zoning reform, I think, in a lot of places. You, you've seen Salt and, Lake and will City. will progressive support progressive yeah. zoning reform. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think Salt Lake City had just had this debate over uh, up to quadplexes in single-family neighborhoods. And I'm hearing rumblings. They may do away with single-family zoning altogether in the future, whether there are other municipalities outside of the liberal bastion of Salt Lake City who are willing to do this. Maybe not. Yeah. I, I want to talk about education. There are a couple things I want to ask about. Let, let's start first funding. What are we expecting in terms of funding for education, the proposals? What, what do we – I won't ask if it's enough because it doesn't ever quite seem to be. But what do we know about that part? Um, under the deal that the legislature cut with teachers uh, two years ago, yeah. um, they are going to get the inflation adjustment and student enrollment increases which amounts to, I think, about $400 million. Uh, and then there is money that the governor is proposing on top of that. There's money targeted to rural schools and, and student teaching, things like that. Then there's also this thing hanging over them on the ballot in 2024 about whether they're going to rescind the income tax earmark, where income tax is, ear- is earmarked to public education. It's been that way for you know decades. And so, Is this Amendment G? Yeah, 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 it's going to finally be on the ballot in in 2024. Right. Um and so, you know, going forward it's going to remain to be seen, but right now the way it's set up, they've set aside the student enrollment increase, the the uh inflationary increase, and then it becomes an issue of where they're going to put additional money, I guess, uh, for for teachers, these student teachers, these rural schools, things like that. And then there's this talk about school safety. There's a, a task force that's been looking at that for the, the representative Wilcox's task force has been looking at that for uh, most of the past year, and uh, we'll see if they come forward with anything. I want to know: Are they going to ban cell phones in classrooms? You know, it's an interesting discussion. I think right now people are hoping that they will do it voluntarily. Right? It's the governor sending out letters saying, "Please help us with this," but I also wonder if a carrot approach is going to be uh, productive and they may go to a mandate. I, 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 don't, I don't know if they'll do it this session, though. They like to say they're limited government, so we'll see. Well, what about uh, – I guess it wouldn't be right to call it banning books, but there's a sensitive material review amendments uh, bill that sounds what, – what, what does that mean? It's the idea of trying to protect – well, what is the idea? Trying, well, according to the sponsor, yeah. it's trying to protect um, kids from exposure to pornography in their school libraries. Yeah. So this bill would split the material between objectively offensive um, or sensitive and subjectively. And if it's objective, then they can be removed without, basically without review, right? And if it's subjective, then those books, like if there's a complaint from a parent, hey, I, you know, my child read this book and I find it offensive, then they can go through a review process. But if, if it's found to be just objectively offensive, then it can just be removed. Will it make it? Uh, I think there's a chance. I think, I think it's likely there will be some changes because they've, they've recognized that what they put in place – 
didn't necessarily accomplish the goal they were trying to accomplish. And while Holly said that they like to think of themselves as small government people, they also like to have their way. And so if they don't get their way, I think you're going to see some see them sort of, you know, nudge a little harder. You know, I, I just read this article about um, Florida. There's a school district in Florida mm-hmm. that removed 1,600 books, including the dictionary. So I, I don't think Utah really wants to get that far. But I mean, we saw before, right? We removed the Bible because it had some offensive stuff in it. So we'll see. I, I, didn't, re- I didn't know. Maybe I should have known this, that nearly, nearly a quarter of school-aged kids in Utah are chronically absent, and there is some, maybe, Holly, some effort to deal with chronic absenteeism? Yeah, there has been. So one of the things with that, um, this is coming out of the pandemic, right? People expected that the kids would go back to school and things would go back to normal. And what we're finding is that there's this big chunk of kids that are not attending school regularly. So I think it's absent more than 10% of the time um, equates to chronic absenteeism. And, And I think sometimes the idea is that it's high schoolers, right? They're sloughing class, whatever. But a lot of times they're finding even kids in the younger grades. So last year what, they're, what they did, the legislature, was to pass a bill saying this is the carrot approach. What can we do to educate parents? What can we do to make things easier? What can we do to find out why kindergartners aren't going? Do they have a single mom who has a job? She can't get the child to school or can't you know go to school and then come back? Will that be fixed by all-day kindergarten now? Those types of things. I, I don't know that there's going to be another bill this year, but I talked with Representative Perucci, who's the chair of the Education Committee in the House, and she said they're definitely concerned about it. They're definitely talking about it, but she hasn't seen a bill proposal yet. That's Holly Richardson. She's a Deseret News columnist, along with Robert Gerke, a columnist for the Salt Lake Tribune, and Sean Higgins. He's a political reporter at KUER, co-host, along with Sage Miller of the podcast State Street. A lot of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And how this is playing out in Utah's public universities, in particular. What, what is? I mean, the governor's been very outspoken about this. Last year, there's an effort to to defund DEI offices in public universities. That didn't get out of maybe it got out of rules, but it didn't get very far. Are you going to expect something like that this year? So, what are you what are you expecting with the DEI? Well, they've already released a bill. Um, It has a House sponsor and a Senate sponsor. It's Representative Katie Hall and Senator Keith Grover. And their bill does away with all all DEI um, um, programs, statements in all state entities, not just higher ed. And what they're proposing is that you take the money that went to DEI offices, for example, and you do some type of support for all students at the university level specifically, although they do have a stick in there as well, which says if you have a complaint and you go through remediation and they don't feel like you have solved the problem, then they um, are willing to withhold funding from your university. What, What they're trying to say, as I understand it, is we think DEI has been weaponized and it's actually not doing what it says it's doing. My concern as an individual is this is so much of a backlash that they're going to have the opposite effect and people who were already marginalized will now be more marginalized and less able to fit in. Although, again, um, they're saying 
that they want to make sure that everyone feels included. And so whether that's somebody who is white but less affluent or a first-generation student, et cetera, that they could, everybody has access to these support services, not just people of color. And, and I would just add to that that, you know, basically they want our university systems to be colorblind, which sounds like a noble goal or maybe a reasonable goal. But if you look at outcomes, if you look at the students who are enrolling, the students who are graduating, the faculty representation, if those are equal, then you can start saying we don't need to even look yeah. at this anymore. But they're not equal and they haven't ever been. And and in fact, we've actually lost ground in some ways. And so now to to sort of heap on top of that – the removal of any of these offices that focus on this issue or recruit these students or maybe give them some consideration for disadvantages that they encountered along their student path or their professorial path, I think is is the wrong way to go. But the governor, who had previously been, when he after he was elected, was touting the benefits of diversity in, in you know our society, now has said it's an evil. Force, bordering on bordering on evil <laughs> yeah. in in the university setting, and so I don't think he's going to stand on that train track when it comes when the train comes rolling down the tracks. And I think this is something that there is an appetite by, among this legislature, and, and as we mentioned among Speaker Schultz, to to let's say address. I think when we look at particularly what the governor has said, his kind of focus has been on the ideological diversity side. I think mm-hmm. conservatives have harped on the liberalization of universities in the United States for decades and decades and decades. And I think this is their way of addressing that political football in a way, a little bit of a red meat issue that the the conservative side of the aisle has really kind of had their eye on for years and years. And I think, like Holly was saying the, the funding that would be going to these DEI programs will now be going to – they're calling them the student success offices. And I think it's a little bit of, of what we saw last year with combining two issues that maybe aren't necessarily related, com- packaging them in one bill. Last year we saw that with the school choice school voucher program combining it with the teacher raise. I could see a lot of Democrats voting for student success offices when it is combined with eliminating DEI that's a t- that's that's a non-starter for Democrats. Like, let's be real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Sean, you were mentioning Mayor Mendenhall is sort of ch- has been changing the narrative. This is that homelessness is all Salt Lake City and Salt Lake County's fault. But what do you expect on the Hill to address the question of homelessness? Anything this year? I think the the main thing I've seen has been Governor Cox's budget ask. And it's a lot of money. I think it's almost $200 million for uh, those programs. And the people I have talked with is they say there's no silver bullet to this issue. It's more about strategic infusions of resources and bottlenecks in the system, whether it's from the treatment side, from the housing side, from the intervention side, where the right hand sometimes isn't doesn't know what the left hand is doing, reforming the way that the criminal justice system goes about this. We've seen the state office of homelessness kind of look at a a Miami model, a Florida model of how they look at it more of a health issue than a criminal justice issue, Mm -hmm. which is quite progressive for, for a state like Utah to be looking at this. So I think as far as bills we'll see in the legislature, I'm not sure we'll see many bills addressing this. I think this will come in the budget debate because it is a, a, a funding issue and, yeah. and getting those hmm. assets deployed in ways that best serve the people in the homeless. 
So I was looking at the um, the House Majority Policy Priorities. They have this document that they put out every year. And I saw, I think in a few places, these references to push back on what they describe as federal overreach, (laughs) like through the judicial system, these other things. Um, Sean, one of the things you've been reporting about is Republican Senator Scott Sandel is floating this law, this idea, this bill called the Utah Constitutional Sovereignty Act, which I think sort of goes to this question of how a state relates with the federal government. What, what do you what do you think – explain what it is and what, like, what are the chances for something like this? So this would essentially give the state of Utah another tool in their toolbox in, in the fight against the big bad federal government. <laughs> this – I spoke with Senator Sandel about this bill and this would essentially – give the legislature a way to directly weigh in on whether it's an executive order or an EPA regulation or something with public lands that they don't like. They see it as a violation of the Tenth Amendment, which is kind of gives the separation of powers between the states and the federal government. And talking with some constitutional scholars on this, yeah, that's this is question. a centuries-old <laughs> argument we've yeah, been having yeah, yeah. about the Tenth Amendment, basically. And... States sue the federal government all the time over this kind of stuff. So what would this actually do? Senator Sandel said it would it would streamline the process. Essentially, the state wouldn't be waiting for a judge to decide, which could take months or even years on this stuff. If they see something that they see as an egregious overstep of the federal government, they could move quickly on a resolution, declare this unconstitutional, and then all these state agencies wouldn't have to comply. And then the federal government would essentially have to take the state to court, and it would be in in, in, in – in their side of the side of the argument to to prove that this is a constitutional thing. So like I said, the the problem with federalism is when we say government should decide or we say democracy should decide, which democracy are we talking about? The state democracy or the federal democracy? <laughs> well, what is legislative council saying to to the senator and and others about the possibilities of something like this? It seems questionable. So I mean, there's quite a few safeguards, if you will, to prevent against this being abused. You need support from the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate or a two-thirds majority of both bodies to even bring a resolution to the floor. And then it goes through the entire legislative process, has to be signed by the governor and and, and all of that. So according to Senator Sandel, this is going to be used narrowly, particularly on issues that have to do with natural resources, the environment and public lands. I think the ongoing fight with Bears Ears and Escalante is a prime example Mm. of an inspiration for this. And there are other states in the United States that have done this as well. Texas had a shot at this, I believe, in 2017, taking on the 10th Amendment. Arizona, I believe, maybe one or two others. And then this one in particular was inspired by the government of Alberta in Canada, of all places. And at the surface, that seems like a not very... Uh, a relatable situation, but Alberta is similar to Utah in a lot of ways, a lot of natural resources up there. They see the government in Ottawa as infringing on a lot of their rights when it comes to environmental policy or natural resource policy. And I think Senator Sandel saw that and, and saw an applicable case here in Utah. Yeah, I mean, they're they're buying themselves a lawsuit is what they're doing. And and so... In, in the bill a, will pass. I mean, come on. Yeah. Nobody, you think the bill will pass? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. I on on the surface, it. it's really quite nonpartisan. It's just a procedural thing. Like we're giving ourselves this option and there's no guarantee who's going to be in the White House in the future. Hmm. And I think five, ten years from now, there could be a thing where 
the Democrats be like, hey, there's this executive order. We've got a we've got a way to deal with this. They're going to be waving waving this bill in the in the yeah. Republicans' faces. The, the state of Utah gets roughly half of its budget from the federal government, and so. The the issue is not even just the strictly the the litigation aspect of it that we're going to have to fr- fund, um, but there's strings attached to that federal funding, and if the state is, refuses to start complying or facilitating some of these federal rules and regulations or executive orders like this bill would envision. I got to think that the money is going to go away as well. Well, maybe it gives us a segue into just a brief conversation about energy because, Sean, one of the things you've mentioned is Speaker Schultz wants the state to be energy independent. Now there's this concern about the you know federal target to close coal-fired power plants in Utah. We have five here. I'm wondering what you think – like what is the relationship between the federal government and the state? How is that going to play out in terms of like energy policy in the state? Any ideas? I mean, I think we've seen some of that already with this good neighbor rule from the EPA where the attorney general has sued the federal government over uh, just emissions and how emissions from Utah affect other states around us. And I think that has inspired some of this rhetoric, particularly with Rocky Mountain Power announcing they're closing their two coal-fired power plants ahead of schedule. Um, certainly, Speaker Schultz believes that's a direct effect of what he would say is federal overreach when it comes to some of these policies. So I think – it's it's all interconnected in, in one way or another. I think these this bill from Senator Sandel. I think that the top two targets will be these EPA regulations and anything regarding public lands, particularly in southern Utah. I think a broader conversation, even beyond energy and public lands, is what role does the state have with the federal government being totally mired in dysfunction, right? So we back in the day, it was 2011, we passed SB 116 in the state that said we're going to start regulating undocumented workers in our state. We want to know where they are. We're going to let them work, right? And people were like, well, that's a constitutional duty of the federal government. But when the federal government doesn't do what they're supposed to do, does the state have the ability to push back? And I think we're seeing that in a variety of states. And this is the latest iteration from Utah, but not the first. Sean's out of time. He's got to go. So let me ask a final question. Robert Gerke, one of the things you uh, told us is you you said you sort of – when you look at what's playing out at the legislature, it seems to be playing out. It has the makings of a pretty reactionary session. So putting all this together, what do you expect? There are so many of these issues, these sort of national culture war hot button issues that are lined up on the on the runway ready to take off. And they're going to try to push as many of them through in the first few weeks and deal with the fallout from that and then try to move on. One of the things I'm interested in is as Utah is looking to host the Olympic Games, looking to get a Major League Baseball team, looking to get an NHL hockey team, do the optics of that damage the state so much that it jeopardizes any efforts in that regard? And do the do the people who are behind those movements speak up and say, hey, let's – it breaks here a little bit. I'm not sure that that's going to happen, but I think the state could do real damage to its reputation nationally, internationally with some of this stuff. And, and it's something that they need to consider. But I mean, we're changing election law. We're changing DEI. We're ch- attacking the transgender bathroom issues. We're doing all of these national hot button issues. We're going to end up with a lot of lawsuits and and it, we're you know, falling right in line with a lot of these other states, even though in the past we've kind of resisted some of those uh, trends, um, we're we're now catching up in a big way. I think everything's going to be colored by 
primary season mm-hmm. and the election year. I think that we're going to see a lot of, if not laws, a lot of resolutions that kind of just go serve to make statements and, like everyone said, put it on your, your mailers in the next few months. And this will be a very rea- reactionary session. I think Speaker Schultz sees the House as serving that role in state mm-hmm. government. They're, they say He says mm-hmm. they're the closest to the voters. It is our duty to be reactive to, to the, the issues of the day the week, the month, the hour, sometimes. Um, so I think we will see a lot of noise. Mm. Holly, final word. I think that we will see a lot of that, but I also think that there will be some good work done, especially maybe on families, on supporting families with child care, with expanding child tax credits. I think there's some interesting discussions about how do we best support mothers and during their pregnancy and postpartum. And I think those issues will not be as splashy, but I think those can turn out to be good laws in the end, but it'll be rowdy. (laughs) Holly Richardson, she's a columnist for the Deseret News and editor of Utah Policy. It's a local news aggregator. Also with us, of course, Robert Gerke. He's a columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune and KUER News political reporter Sean Higgins, who, along with Sage Miller, co-hosts the station's podcast called State Street. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas or comments or feedback, you can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.